We're in the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn to Romans. We wrapped up Romans chapter 2 last week. We're going into Romans chapter 3, and this is finally going to be the close of this section that began all the way back in chapter 1, this section that has been heavy, this section of his letter to the Romans that would be essentially be the bad news. For like five weeks, we've been essentially taking blows, I would say from Paul, but essentially from the mirror, where Paul's holding up the mirror and forcing us to examine ourselves, forcing us to be honest with ourselves, forcing us to to look and see the state of humanity. And I don't say that as if the state of humanity, and, and this is something too, relative to like current events and all that, that, you know, the idea that like, oh man, it's so bad right now. People are so evil, worse than they've ever been. Not really. Human, humanity has been sinful since the fall. And I mean, right away in the early chapters, we see a brother murder a brother. And so um, we see more than we ever have. We have more access to the information and the, the images and all of that. Um, and especially us living in America who have had decades now of, of peace and comfort and convenience. We see the stuff and we start going, oh man, it's getting really bad. Man, tell that to the believer in North Korea or in China or in Afghanistan or Kyrgyzstan or wherever. Like, tell them that it's getting bad now. And they're going to go, <laughs> open your eyes, bud, or, or come over and experience. And so, All of that to say the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is just holding up the mirror, forcing examination to go, hey, here's this list of of ungodliness wherein people suppress the truth of God and exchange it for the lie, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the created things, letting the affections of our heart that our love of sin cause us to believe lies and suppress the truth. And then from that, he proceeds on to talking about the hypocrite who knows the right things and says the right things, but then does another things. And their condemnation is the same. And then he goes on uh, beyond that to the person who's self-righteous, the person who's who's feeling like, man, because I do these good things, I'm good. And Paul's saying, that's great that you do all these good things, but again, if you're not batting a thousand, you're in trouble. Meaning if you've never, if you haven't lived perfectly, if you're trusting in your ability to obey God's law, you have to perfectly and flawlessly obey 100%, to which every single one of us miserably crashes and burns against that metric. Paul recognized In this letter where he wants to articulate in a really systematic and full way, wants to articulate the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that if he's going to preach the good news that Jesus saves, that there were many people that didn't believe they needed saving. They would accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus was the sent one, the anointed one from God, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. But a lot of them would have struggled to recognize Jesus as the Savior because they would have struggled to recognize that they needed saving. So from the end of chapter 1 through the first half to chapter 3, Paul chips away every single false assurance. And he himself, being formerly a devout 
Pharisaical Jew, rabbinic Jew, who had so much of the Old Testament memorized, did all the things, he himself personally, of course, recognized that one of the biggest uphill battles, one of the biggest challenges was getting Jews to see their need for salvation. Why? Because they're covenantly God's chosen people. They were given the law. They were given the promises of an eternal kingdom. They were given promises of a Messiah. They were obedient to the primary covenantal symbols and rituals and laws and festival observances. And if there were a people who were going to be tough to get them to see their need for saving, it was the first century Jew. Now remember last week we saw that those who are truly God's people, truly God's people, are not those who have the external stuff right. Don't, don't just have the mark of God on their flesh via circumcision, but those who have the mark of God on their heart. In fact, we saw this in Romans 2.29 where Paul said, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. For us to attempt to understand it, how difficult this could be. It would be similar to someone as we have this baptistry out in front of us today because we're going to baptize four people at the end of this service and we're going to baptize another person at the end of second service and I'm super pumped about that. But it would almost be like someone trying to teach us that, hey, baptism isn't important anymore. That baptism doesn't matter. We would hear that as, as modern Christians who have the Bible and we go, what do you mean that doesn't matter? That's similar to the struggle that the first century Jew would have had if you said, like, hey, it's great that you're circumcised and it's great that you're a a born Jew, but that won't save you. They're sitting there going, wait, hold on, what? Because they've been told all their lives that 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 was what mattered for being in covenant relationship with God. And I think sometimes it's difficult for us as modern Westerners to empathize with how difficult it would have been for them, a first century Jew, to accept these things. Now, there was a degree of entitlement, a degree of entitlement or a sense of entitlement if you were born a Jew. A a trust and a confidence that you were among God's people because you were born into his chosen people, especially a confidence in circumcision. There's tons of rabbinic writings over the centuries wherein that that covenant symbol of circumcision is where they banked so much of their confidence and their trust. And this entitlement was contrary to the gospel that Paul was preaching because it put blinders over their eyes, preventing them from seeing that even though they'd received the law and the commands of God, and even though they'd been circumcised on their flesh, they were still dead in sin, their hearts not circumcised. I remember when I was like four or five years old, re- living in this tiny, blink and you miss it type of town in Louisiana called Ragley, Louisiana, where we'd go out and catch crawdads, crawfish, live in that little, good little country boy life. And uh, my dad was the pastor of this really small church in Ragley, Louisiana. And he was part-time. He would also part-time, he would travel and represent a very large international ministry in the southeastern corner of the United States. He would go and represent them to other ministries. So he'd be home pastoring, but then also part of the time, he'd be out traveling. 
my two older brothers and I would love when dad would come home from his trips. Because we miss dad, yes, but let's be real. We were excited about the goodies he would bring home to us. Sometimes he would bring home treats or candy or different things like that. Sometimes he'd bring us home toys. I remember when he brought us home bags of the little green army men with the, you know, the plastic feet and all that. I remember those times. There was one time, though, that dad came home and he gave my two brothers and I, he gave us these awesome, epic water guns that looked like pump shotguns. They were blue and they were orange and they were awesome. And you could pump them and you could shoot water. Well, there was a weekend that my dad was out of town. He'd gone on one of his ministry trips and there was a guest speaker at the church or something I can't remember, but there are definitely things I do remember about this weekend. My brothers and I had the amazing idea to go back into our house. We lived in a parsonage right next to the church. And we went into that house, got our awesome blue and orange pump shotgun water guns, and then we went back into the church on Sunday morning and gave the church members showers. <laughs> Punk little entitled pastor's kids. Dad came home. And I remember distinctly sitting in the living room on the couch as dad gets home and mom had said, wait till your dad gets home. And dad gets home. And let's be real, this is in the 80s in the South. I thought spankings were coming. And, and we're sitting there and dad takes those water guns and breaks them over his knee. And we sobbed and cried and cried and cried. And looking back, how tragic and traumatic that was to me as a four or five-year-old. But now I'm thankful that, that my dad did that, um, that he rooted that entitlement, that, that bratty attitude, that lack of discretion and judgment, just all the bad there. I'm thankful now that my dad did that. I'm still hunting for another one of those water guns to find one day. I'm not scarred. Um, but I remember him doing that and, and crushing my joy over his knee and that pain of that moment, that sense of entitlement that because my dad was a pastor, I could do whatever I wanted. And then dad got home and we gave an account for our sins and we found out really fast that our father's headship of the church did not grant us immunity for our misdeeds. We couldn't just run around banking on the fact that our dad was pastor and that we were born into the family of the man of the cloth. We would similarly give an account for our stupid decisions, our misdeeds. This is sort of what Paul is doing to the Jewish Christians in the church of Rome, trying to help them see by <laughs> breaking their, their hopes over his knee, if you will, moreover, over the law breaking their confidence over the law, wherein their confidence was in their obeying of the law. Paul's actually using the law to break it, break their confidence and help them see, hey, you're banking in your lineage and in this covenant symbol of circumcision and you're not recognizing that you're still a sinner dead in sin. 
Now, if you can imagine how relatively devastating this would be if you were a faithful Jew, or at least faithful enough to convince yourself that you were good, you'd be wrestling to a degree with thoughts of anger, probably. Man, like this whole time, I've been doing this this whole time, been obeying these things this whole time. A sense of disappointment, sense of confusion, possibly. And Paul, as he so often does in his letters, writes in the style of diatribe, where he presents these rhetorical questions to combat the objections that he thinks people are going to bring up against his arguments. And so in arguing that all people are sinful, Paul has drawn attention to the place of the Jew. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the first rhetorical question that Paul poses is, what is the advantage of even being a Jew or even being circumcised? And from everything he said over the last few chapters, you would expect Paul to say, there isn't any. There's no advantage. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, well, much in every way, or there's, there's a lot of advantage, not least of which is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God. Now, at a much lesser level, a similarity here can be that even though my growing up as a pastor's kid did not protect me from punishment or judgment for my sins, It still was a wonderful advantage that I was raised to know, love, worship, serve, and follow God. Even though those things didn't save me, it's a wonderful advantage in my life that I was raised that way. I'm grateful for it. I was raised saturated in Scripture. And that word of God that was planted in my heart over and over, watered over and over again through the years, is what brought me to the Lord. Even though God has provided salvation to the Gentiles, to those of us who are not Jews, and we have been engrafted into his family, he still gave his word to Israel and to the rest of the world through Israel. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is a Jewish Messiah. The covenant of the Old Testament is a Jewish covenant. Jesus comes as a Jew and fulfills the Jewish covenant. The new earth at the end of all time, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem. And everything that God had promised in the Old Testament to his chosen people, those promises in Jesus Christ are fulfilled. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ, that yes and amen. This is why salvation, as Paul says, is for the Jew first and also for the Greek You might be thinking, well, I'm not Greek. That's a terminology that was used uh, in some cases for all Gentiles. To the Jew first and all the rest of us. Similarly, judgment will come to the Jew first and then also 
to the Greek. Let's continue reading in Romans 3. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Listen, Paul never subjugates, he never subjugates God's faithfulness in his promises under the behaviors of men. Paul is saying, listen, if man is unfaithful, that has absolutely no implications on the faithfulness of God. He has never been and never will be unfaithful, nor can he be unfaithful, because that is contrary to who he is. It's contrary to his nature. God cannot lie. God will not lie. God cannot be unfaithful to his promises and to his word. He will not, because he cannot. It's contrary to who he is. Scripture says um, that God cannot lie, um, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said it, and will he not do it? Has he spoke it, and will he not make it good? He cannot break his promises. Paul is putting the onus back on people's sin and disobedience as the reason for their rejection. He's saying this is why God is not unjust in condemning someone from his chosen people, Israel, because they have been unfaithful to him. On the contrary, he has actually been merciful and gracious in the face of their outright rebellion, our outright rebellion, all of it for the sake of his name. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, God's commitment to his glory, to his namesake, and all those scriptures from the Old Testament that talked about for my namesake, for my namesake, for my namesake, for my namesake, and remembering how many of those verses also said, hey, I'm going to save you, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to protect you, even though you have turned from me, rebelled against me, hardened your heart against me, sinned against me. Not because you're awesome, but for the sake of my name, that my name would not be profaned among the nations. I will rescue you. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. For the sake of his name, that is his name would not be blasphemed among the nations. It's actually God's faithfulness and righteousness that's seen in condemning unbelief that comes from sin leading to unfaithfulness in man. And so what he's doing here is for the people who are going, but what about all the things that God said to the Jews, all the covenants that God made to the Jews, all the promises that he made to the Jews? Isn't God unfaithful if there's chosen people from the Jewish people that then are rejected and, and turned away because of their sin? And Paul's saying, no, that, that's, that's putting the spotlight on their unfaithfulness, not God's unfaithfulness, because he can't be unfaithful. He is faithful. That's what he's doing here. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's continue on in verse 5, Romans 3. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? speak in a human way. He's saying right there, I'm not saying that's true. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul continues in diatribe, bringing up more of these rhetorical questions. He's sitting here as he's teaching these truths. He's imagining, here's what people might say. And actually also remembering that, Jew, that, that Paul was a Pharisaical Jew. He's someone who probably used to make these arguments against Christians. And so he's bringing these questions up. And Paul answers more of these objections that he's either heard or supposed. That, man, if my unfaithfulness reveals the faithfulness of God, like if, if the fact that I'm unfaithful and it really reveals how faithful God is, and shouldn't I just keep, keep it up to show off how faithful God is? And shouldn't we, and, and even in that, is God just to judge and condemn me to his wrath if that's showing how faithful he is? And Paul essentially says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's kind of what Paul's saying here when he goes into these, I'm, not, I'm speaking in human terms right now, and, and what has been rendered out for us in these translations of certainly not. If you did some, some Greek study into the ancient culture of that day, the way that he was using these words saying certainly not would be equivalent of us going like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Paul's trying to make these arguments that, hey, if you're trying to say that God's unfaithful because these Jews are being condemned because of their unfaithfulness, or if you're trying to say that we should be unfaithful to mirror and juxtapose to reveal and exalt how faithful God is, those are the dumbest things I've heard. Paul is going to retouch on this a few chapters later in Romans chapter 6. For now, let's continue reading in verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And here he goes through quoting a litany of passages from Psalms and Isaiah and Ecclesiastes. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul, as a good Jew himself, a good Pharisee, knowing more of the Old Testament than the average guy, starts pulling all these mixed Old Testament passages out from the book of Psalms and Isaiah and Ecclesiastes, and he mixes them all together to just say, hey, in case all the stuff I've said so far hasn't got through that thick skull, deeper hasn't got through that hard heart, no one's good. Well, hang on, Stephen, like, but but there's people in the world, no, no one's good. Why do bad things happen to good people? Don't. 
The breath we have in our lungs right now is given to us by the grace and mercy of God. We deserve none of it. God owes us nothing. In fact, if we want to consider what God owes us, according to Scripture, He owes us wrath. That's what's been painted in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans for us, that the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness, the ungodliness of men. And the breather is coming, but before that reprieve of the gospel comes in, of the grace of God, Paul just goes, in case I have not made it clear, there ain't none good, none of you, not me, not you, not Mother Teresa, not the most generous benefactor donor in the world, not the person who's helping the most poor people around the world and feeding the starving or doing whatever good things they can do. Paul's saying, no one is good. No, not one. Any goodness in us, the good things that we do, is but by the grace of God. This is so fundamental and so important that Paul is going, man, if you're going to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, you have to be able to look in the mirror of God's law and recognize you need saving. Guys, that is hard for us, just like it was hard for the first century Jew. The first century Jew has the word of God, the oracles of God, the commands of God, and they do Work hard to try and obey them, but they have imperfectly obeyed them and therefore are guilty before God. We, especially if you've been in church like me your whole life, we learn how to be good Christian boys and girls. Or maybe you're relatively new and you've been learning the things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do as a Christian. And those statements and those thoughts and those principles are true. We shouldn't sin. We should abstain from sin. And we should pursue righteousness and holiness. We should try, by the grace of God, key there, to live in a way that pleases, glorifies, and honors God. But it's only by the grace of God that we can do it. It is only by the grace of God that we can do it. Well, Stephen, hang on. How can you say that? Because there's people that don't know God, that haven't been saved by the grace of God, that don't have the Holy Spirit of God in them, that do good works. And yeah, that's the common grace of God to all peoples, just like Scripture says that God is good to all. This again goes to the point of, if you're breathing right now, that breath in and out is the grace of God that you don't deserve. If we are alive, it is by the grace of God. Scripture tells us that Jesus is currently upholding all things by the word of his power. The universe and all of its intricate functions with gravity and everything being right as it needs to be to make sure that we could live in an environment where we can live. The fact that our bodies function the way that they function, where we ingest, we breathe in, we inhale oxygen and we exhale carbon monoxide and the way that all of this works together is by the fact that Jesus is upholding it all right now by his grace. He owes none of it to us. And this bratty entitlement pastor's kid concept of that we can just live however we want because we're pretty good, because we know the things and we've got God's word. Paul's going, no, you're not good. There's none good. No, not one. 
It's like he's saying, don't believe me, good Jew. Here's a bunch of scriptures making this point. Remember that one time when Jesus was asked the question, why do you call me good? Don't you know that there is none good but the Father? Now, there's two things that could have been happening in that question and statement from Jesus. One, he's teaching this truth of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man. And or two, he's pointing out that he is good. That's why you're noting that he's good, because he came from the Father who is good. I think both are true. What's the biggest fault of man? Is it murder? Is it lust? Is it envy? Is it greed? Is it jealousy? Is it gossip? Is it bitterness? What, 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 what is it? I would say the greatest evil is the lie that we are good. Because that is the obstacle that gets in the way of us crying out for a Savior. When you believe that you're good, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I come to church and I give and I serve. And I mean, sure, I make mistakes here and there, but I'm still a pretty good person. Pretty good is not good enough. And Paul is just finally pulling together this conglomerate of Old Testament scripture to just go, hey, guys, listen, 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 listen. You're not good. And I love it because scripture even knows what the heart of man is going to do when he says, there's none righteous. And you go, but hang on, Paul, what about, no, not one. Well, but Paul, I, I, my attention, no. Not one. But I, you know, I give my, no, not one. But I was baptized and catechized and, no, not one. None righteous. No, not one. Why does Paul have to take this much of the opening of his letter from, from half of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3 to make this point and then drive it home by just clearly going none, no, not one. Why? Because we don't believe that. We think we're good. And we will use our good deeds and we'll stack them all up to try and convince ourselves and we'll ignore our misdeeds and try to belittle them or compare them to other people that we think have worse misdeeds to tell ourselves that we're good. Listen, I believe I actually got saved when I was 26 because that's the first time I was honest with myself about the depravity of my heart. Even though I'm a pastor's kid, raised in it, knowing all the things, even though I repeated some prayers after some teachers in Sunday schools, my heart didn't change back then because I wasn't honest with myself about the depravity of my heart. I didn't really believe I needed saving. It was this concept of Jesus died on the cross for my sins and stuff, and so I believe that he did that, and I believe that he rose from the dead, but I didn't truly believe I needed saving. I thought I was pretty good. Paul says, no, not one after he's highlighted the blatant ungodliness of mankind, especially pagan culture, after he zooms into the heart of the hypocrite to reveal their sin, after he zooms into the false assurance of self-righteous law obedience and shatters it by saying that you've got about a thousand, and the slightest chance that there's still somebody who's going, I'm good, he goes, no, not one. Continuing on in verse 19, he says, now... 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. <laughs> well, but, but what about, no, every mouth will be stopped. Every what about that you could bring up, the law says, zip it. That every mouth can, would be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here we go. Here's the kicker. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Herein we find one of the primary uses of the law, of God's law. The law shows us our sin. Wherein the Old Testament Israelite received the law of God, and they stand up at its reading and they go, we will do it every word. And God goes, ha, <laughs> ha. <laughs> you're cute. No, you're not righteous. You're not good. You don't see yet that I'm giving this as a hurdle that you can't jump over. So you'll try and keep trying and keep trying until finally one point you get too exhausted and you go, how come I can't jump this hurdle? Well, because your, your heart's dead in sin. You need me to pick you up and take you over this hurdle. And here comes the fresh air. Because for a little bit, this feels like maybe we've been thrown into the ocean of our sin and we're trying to tread water and we're trying to just stay up, trying to keep ourselves up. And like someone's coming and just dumping more water on us as we're trying to tread in the ocean. And then Paul's going to give the grace of God right here. After we felt the weight of our sin. Verse 21. But now, oh, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh man, all that no, not one ought to make you hear this and go, thank you, Lord. That he's the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. That's why a few weeks ago I said the Christian doesn't walk with a swagger where we're like, yeah, I love God. No, the Christian walks with a limp where it's like, God loves me. <laughs> and I'm following him. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Meaning God's the God of the whole world. Even though he chose the Jews to give his word and to show forth his plan and to manifest his plan, I'm not just the God of this one people group. I'm the God of the universe. He's the God of the whole world. God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Verse 30. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Listen, if there were a people among us today who needed the principles of what God is trying or what Paul is trying to do in this passage, it would be those of us especially who have grown up in the light of the truth, have learned what God commands, have learned the do's and don'ts of Christianity, and are depending on their adherence to certain aspects of Christianity's do's and don'ts to be what gets them in. They never saw their depth of their need for salvation and therefore think in their core that they're good enough. And Paul says, no, no, you're not. No, not one. Your biggest obstacle to salvation is not your knowledge of sin. It is your admittance of it. Your obstacle is not, do I or don't I know what things are sinful or not? Your obstacle is not, do I know what's right and wrong? Your obstacle is, are you willing to admit you're a sinner? Oh, oh yeah, everyone's a sinner. No, 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 no. Do you, are you willing to admit the level of unrighteousness that's in the heart of man? What causes Paul in Romans 7 to go, what a wretched man that I am. The guy who's writing this letter, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, who becomes an incredible apostle minister of the gospel of God, spreading it throughout the known world at that time. In chapter 7, he goes, man, what a wretched man that I am. Have you seen that in the mirror? Because listen, Jesus did not come to help good people become better people. He came to make wretches into righteousness. He came to make dead in sin alive in Christ. And until you recognize your depravity in sin, your wretchedness because of sin, your need for a Savior, you will simply look at Jesus Christ as like this, this genus, Jesus garnish on top of, of your already pretty good life. Your pretty goodness and Jesus is just going to fill in the gaps there. No, you're dead and you need to be made alive. He came to save us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ for all who would believe. For the Jew first and also for us Gentiles. And if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins, if we believe that he was raised on the third day, and if that belief, that faith pushes us to turn from sin in repentance and to chase after Jesus Christ. We repent and we ask God to fill us with his spirit and he makes us new. He changes our hearts. Stephen, you say those same things a whole lot. Yeah, this is, notice how much Paul had to keep saying the same things to get, get it through people's heads, get it through people's hearts. Hearts.